You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, this morning we uh, come before you knowing that we are unrighteous, knowing that we are not holy, knowing that we are not faithful as we ought to be, knowing that we fall short of your glorious standards. We know, God, that this is the common plight of all mankind. We confess that we have made a world and a universe that is plagued by sin and by rebellion against you. And it has fallen and desperately in need of a Savior. We rejoice in that Savior this morning. God, in the midst of a world of sin, sometimes events stand out above others. And we pray, God, for your people, your church in London and in England and in the United Kingdom this morning as they are still uh, reeling in the aftermath of, of a deadly attack. We ask, God, that you would allow your church to persevere and to stand strong in faithfulness despite being surrounded by a world of sin. We pray, God, that your church would be a light of the gospel and proclaim a, a good news of salvation Salvation from a works righteousness, for salvation from a need to please you as if we ever could fully please you. That those who are without hope this morning would find hope in the faithful proclamation of your church. And maybe even, God, that those who wish to do harm or would even celebrate in harm. would see a God who knows that they don't measure up and extends a hand of salvation anyway. And they would be changed and transformed and surrender to a new Lord, Jesus Christ. We pray that our witness here in Cleveland would be faithful as well. May we shine the gospel light brightly. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we are um, starting a new, new series uh, this, this week. Uh, they were memorialized in a, a 1923 silent film and in the classic uh, Charlton Heston remake of 1956. They were they were spoofed, of course, in Mel Brooks' History of the World, Part 1. Uh, DreamWorks brought a creative retelling of their reception in Prince of Egypt. They have been cherished as the heart of right ethics and held in esteem as the foundation of modern law. They have also been criticized as an institution or an intrusion of the sacred on the secular. They've been championed as liberating and denounced as stifling. And even Christians have debated the relevance and the significance and the application of these Ten Commandments. So what about them? What about these, these Ten Commandments? What should we say about them? Are they still true today? Or are they bygones of a, a long-lost era? Are they binding on us, or were they abrogated by the work of Christ on the cross? Are they, are they something that we should be teaching each other? Should we legislate them? Should we use them in evangelism? And if they're not binding, does that mean that we can freely break them? Is there a limit to what Christians can be expected to obey? 
And even more practically, the Ten Commandments pose other issues. In some ways, if they are binding or if they are relevant, what do they mean? What does thou shalt not kill mean? Does it obviate capital punishment? Does thou shalt not commit adultery put an end to remarriage? Does thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image prevent the making of religious movies or the making of crucifixes? The, the Ten Commandments are at once one of the simplest and most straightforward passages in the entire Bible. And yet they're a source of endless fascination and controversy. So this summer, over, over ten non-consecutive weeks, we're going to explore these Ten Commandments and what they mean for those of us who love Jesus in the 21st century. And if you're not in that camp, if you're not certain... Uh, where you stand on faith in Jesus Christ. I think there's something in this series for you too. It's my conviction that the Ten Commandments represent a, a portrait of a different kind of life. A, a life that on some level only makes sense within a community of faith covenanted to the God of all eternity. So if you are a non-Christian or an unbeliever, I think, I hope that you'll find that to be an attractive vision. You may even find yourself longing to be part of that community and that covenant. But we're not going to begin with the top of the list just yet. This, this morning we're going to look at the first commandment. But before we look at that first commandment in the series, we need to take a few minutes and, and set the background for this passage and really for the whole series. And specifically, we need to address two things before we can dig in fully. First, because there are likely many who are listening, whether here presently or uh, on the, the website, who don't know the story of the Bible, we need to address where the Ten Commandments come from. Where do they come in within the history of the Scriptures? And second, we need to address what's going on with the Ten Commandments. Why, why is God giving a list of commands in the first place, what's the significance of this? And in answering these two things, we're effectively uh, going to dig into the first two verses of this passage. Exodus 20, verse 1, and Exodus 20, verse 2. And then we'll move into the, the first command. So let's dig in. The, the Ten Commandments, they, they come about in a place in Scripture... That, that's a really a critical juncture in salvation history. Salvation history is fancy theologian talk for the history of God's dealing with human beings that culminates in the salvation from sin and death that many of us will experience. Fancy theological term, but, but a good one to know. And the first five books of the Old Testament are called the law or the Torah. And traditionally, they are viewed as having been at least substantially brought together by the ancient Israelite named Moses. They are distinct enough as a literary unit that there is tremendous value in considering them as a whole rather than just as individual works. And so because of that, there's value in knowing something about the the 50 chapters of Genesis and the 19 chapters of Exodus that precede the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, describes God's creation of the world, his plan to create human beings who would be like him and, and share in his ruling authority. He, he tells them to go and have dominion. But humanity rebelled against God and that rebellion is called sin. And because of that sin, death entered the world. And the world descended into greater and greater chaos. Until God decided to judge the world, rescuing a man named Noah and his family. But continued rebellion caused God to divide the world so that we would not so easily unite with one another in defiance of him. And consequently caused great ruin in the world. You see, God was embarking in a great rescue mission 
He was desiring to save his wayward creation. A God of perfect justice could not merely ignore the evil that we were throwing into the universe. But as a God of perfect love, he could not idly stand by. And so God chose a man, Abram, to follow him wherever he would lead. And Abraham, as, as he later became known, demonstrated faithfulness, which, though imperfect, was credited to his account as right standing in God's eyes. And God promised Abraham that he would cause him to have innumerable descendants that would inherit a little strip of land near the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. And that he, God, would ultimately bless the world through Abraham's offspring. But God was clear that those promises would not be fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. And through a series of blessings and blunders that God used providentially for his own ends, the descendants of Abraham's grandson, Israel, end up in Egypt and prospering. However, for reasons we can only conjecture based on limited historical knowledge, the rulers of Egypt turned against the descendants of Israel, the Israelites, fearing that they might rise up against them. The, the Israelites were constrained to slavery and to manual labor, brutal working conditions, and terrible atrocities. And during this time, a child was born, an Israelite named Moses, who ended up being adopted into the Egyptian royal family. And God would call on this Moses to be a prophet and to speak to the Egyptian king messages from God himself. That the king should release all the Israelites to worship their God for a short religious holiday. And repeatedly, the Egyptian king refused, and as a result, God sent increasingly painful disasters on the Egyptians until the king finally relented. Even then, though, the king had a change of heart. And after the Israelites had left the immediate region, the king pursued them to destroy them, and the Israelites were trapped with the Red Sea before them and the armies of the Egyptians closing in behind them. But God miraculously opened a path in the sea for the Israelites to walk through to the other side. And when the Egyptians gave pursuit, the waters closed in on them, drowning the armies of the Egyptian king. Not only were the Israelites free to worship, but they were free from their Egyptian overlords entirely. They arrived at Mount Sinai, which most scholars believe is the Mount Sinai in the Arabian Peninsula. And there God offered a covenant with the Israelites and called on Moses to ascend the mount and receive the covenant stipulations. And the first stipulations he receives are these ten commandments. So that's the background. And of course, I'm glossing over so much. There are at least a hundred sermons in those 69 chapters that I moved through in three minutes. But that's the historical circumstances of the ten. So what's going on? What's the deal? And, and, and for that, we need to focus on one of those words I just glossed over. Covenant. Covenant's not a word we use very much these days. Maybe occasionally informal arrangements that we like to add a little touch of solemnity to. Then maybe we use a word like covenant. Most commonly you probably hear it in the phrase marriage covenant. Others know that many churches, including ours, have a member's covenant. But what is a, a covenant exactly? And, and how does that fit with what's going on in Exodus chapter 20? I'm going to put it simply, a covenant is a, it's a binding agreement between two parties that places stipulations on each party in order to properly maintain the agreement. If you can take the example of a marriage covenant, which is it's not a perfect example, but it, it'll give us an idea, since it's one we're all familiar with. Traditionally, each party, the, the man and the woman, they make vows to each other. The, the husband pledges certain things to the wife, and the, the wife pledges certain things to her husband. There, there are stipulations, and, and if they maintain those vows, assuming that they're not silly, uh, presumably the marriage relationship will work well. It, it'll go together well. There will be harmonious uh, interaction between the two parties. 
in the ancient Near East, covenants would not just have stipulations, though. But they also would include blessings and curses. In other words, there would be promises of good things for maintaining the covenant, and there would be warnings of bad things for violating the covenant. And what's going on at Mount Sinai is that God is making a covenant with Israel. There are stipulations on the covenant, and there are specific blessings and curses placed on maintaining and violating the covenant respectively. And although there are debates on the details, it's probably best to see the covenant spanning the final 21 chapters of Exodus, as well as the entire 27 chapters of the book of Leviticus. It's a pretty thorough document. But it's not just a covenant. It's not just any sort of covenant. This is where things get interesting. Scholars have noticed that the, there's a general agreement among them that the covenant God is making with the Israelites follows a specific type of covenant that was well known in the ancient Near East, specifically a form called a suzerainty treaty. So if you're a note taker, that's a suzerainty, S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N-T-Y, a suzerainty treaty. Under a, a suzerainty treaty, a, a, a suzerainty t- treaty described the relationship between a powerful king or ruler, and that individual would function as the suzerain, and a weaker king or ruler who functioned as the vassal. Sometimes these relationships were brought on by real or threatened force. But in any case, there are, there are agreements between parties of vastly unequal power in which the suzerain has full prerogative to set the terms of the agreement. It's one-sided in that way. There's not a, this is not, uh, you know, the United States and, and a bunch of other nations, you know, we, we just pulled out of this uh, uh, Paris Accord. This is not a bunch of nations coming together as equals and, and deliberating the terms of the agreement. This is one party who is vastly superior dictating the terms of the agreement. God is, of course, the, the suzerain in this case. These relationships were common in the ancient Near East and, and in various forms throughout actually much of history, not just the ancient Near East, um, even extending into the modern period a little bit. And you can see a number of these in the Bible. One of the most interesting is, is the case of King Yehu of Israel. During his reign in the 9th century B.C., the, the kingdom of Israel was under pressure from King Hazael of the Arameans. And contemporaneous artifacts from Assyria revealed that Sennacherib III, king of Assyria, protected Israel from the Arameans in exchange for tribute, for money, or valuable goods that were sent from Israel to Assyria in exchange for Assyria's benevolence. It's likely that the amount and nature of the tribute was spelled out in some type of suzerainty treaty as the covenant stipulations. We can imagine that in exchange for this faithful service, Israel was promised the blessing of Assyria's protection, but also the threat of destruction if they were unfaithful to the covenant. Israel would have remained a kingdom in its own right, but its ability to determine its own destiny was somewhat diminished because they become become a client of Assyria. A suzerainty treaty typically began with a preamble that introduced the suzerain, followed by a prologue describing the suzerain's history with the vassal and noting any great examples of benevolence that the suzerain had done for the vassal. Only then would any stipulations be given. And that's where this gets interesting as we turn to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, it says, God 
spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is the preamble and the prologue of this covenant, of this suzerainty treaty. First, we note that God spoke all these words. In short, it's God who is dictating the terms of the covenant. And let's not pass over that too quickly, but, but sit in awe of that for just a moment. God has interjected himself in an almost tangible way in human history to make a covenant with a part of his creation. He reveals himself, and he makes himself known personally to these human beings, these Israelites, and makes a contract with them that is, in a way, a very human contract. Of course, this treaty is, is very different than the merely human treaties that the nations around them entered into. But it's amazing that God would here reveal himself in a way that his creatures would understand and appreciate. Now, God is the suzerain. And, and he had promised long ago to make Abraham into a great nation. And now his descendants form an identifiable population that is hundreds of thousands strong. And yet God is greater. He is the suzerain. Israel is the vassal. And God would dictate the terms of this covenant. And then, I am the Lord your God. preamble we might expect a longer or more flowery description of the suzerain you know talking about all of his majesties and all of his glories and all of this these great things but the terseness and the, and the simplicity of this statement seems appropriate because what else is there to say let's break this down it, it's it's short but don't gloss over it he says i am the lord and you'll notice that in most Bibles, Lord is, is, is typefaced with, with, with small caps. You know, capital L with like small capital O-R-D. And that is an indication that it is standing in for the divine name. For, for various historical reasons, we don't usually write the divine name in Scripture. Nothing wrong with it, but it's just become tradition. But God, by the way, if you didn't know, has a name. We don't often call him by his name, but he does have one. He has revealed it to us. Sometimes Christians like to talk about the many, many names of God. Uh, but that's probably inaccurate. There are many descriptions of God in the Bible. But arguably, he has only one name and that name is Yahweh at least that's our best guess of how the earliest Hebrews would have pronounced it early Hebrew was written without vowels and long before the Jews began adding the vowels to help them pronounce the words the Jews had begun to stop saying the name because they thought it was too holy so what we have are four consonants, and I think that's why the yod, hey, vav, hey, or the English equivalent, y, h, w, h. But we have an idea of what the vowels likely were because we know something of what the name means. When God first got Moses' attention and directed him to speak to the Egyptian king, Moses asked God for his name. You know, in, in the ancient Near East, there were many gods that people worshipped. And they had many names. The Egyptians had an entire pantheon of gods. 
There was Ra and Osiris and Isis and so many more. The Canaanites had Dagon, Moloch, El, Asherah. What would Moses tell the Egyptian king? What would Moses tell the Israelites when they asked him, who is this God that is sending you? And God answers him in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And I'm going to read here from the Holman Christian Standard Bible because uh, it's unique in modern translations and that it often uses Yahweh instead of using Lord with the caps. And I want you to hear it a little bit closer to how it might have sounded to Moses. So Moses asked him, Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me and said, I have paid close attention to you. And what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised you. That I will bring you up from the misery of Egypt. To the land of the Canaanites. Hittites. Amorites. Perizzites. Hivites. And Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to what you say. Then you along with the elders of Israel. Must go to the king of Egypt. And say to him. Yahweh. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to Yahweh, our God. So God says that his name is, I am who I am. And then Moses is supposed to tell the Israelites that Yahweh has spoken. Hebrew is an interesting language because the, the tenses blur together a little bit. And when God says, I am who I am, we could, in fairness, translate that, I am who I will be. Or I will be who I am. Or I will be who I will be. And his name points to two markers about God. First, maybe three. First, God is self-defining. He is so unlike any other deity. Whether that deity is worshipped in Egypt or in Canaan or in Babylon or in Phoenicia or in any other place. He is so unlike any other claimant. That he is wholly other. He is in the final analysis beyond any description that can be offered of him. He is who he is. When we describe God as glorious and great and, and, and loving and just and merciful, we are only scratching the surface. Because he is mind-blowing. Second, the name points, frankly, to God's existence. Over and above all the other pretenders to the throne. The Greek-speaking Jews of, of later years translated God's words something like this. I am the existing one. Or I am he who is. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. The existing one has sent me to you. In fact, the name Yahweh 
is a variant on the third person, masculine, singular, of the to be verb. So it's as if God is calling himself, I am, and he's telling the Israelites, call me, he is. Which God is sending Moses? The one who exists. Sure, you have Ra. Sure, you have Osiris. Sure, you have Asherah. Sure, you have Moloch. But we have the God who exists. Third, he is unchanging. And he's eternal. He will be tomorrow exactly who he is today. The God who reached out to Moses to call him in the wilderness will be tomorrow when he's standing before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the same God. With the same attitude and the same mindset and the same purposes. And when he stands before Pharaoh, it's the same God that will be there directing him, who will be with him and the Israelites when he leads them through the wilderness. He has, as scriptures say elsewhere, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this God who speaks to Moses is not the fickle and weak deities of the world. As the study notes of the NET or the Net Bible puts it, the point is that Yahweh is sovereignly independent of all creation and that his presence guarantees the fulfillment of the covenant. So the preamble to that covenant begins, we might say, with I am, he is, your God. So do not ever read that word Lord, when it's got the small capital letters, do not ever read that as simply a title and just move on. Don't do it because that is the very name of God and it points to amazing and wonderful truths about his nature and his character. Truths which, though, are ultimately unfathomable. He is a big God. But we can't move past the preamble just yet because Yahweh says something else here that requires us to pause. He says, he is your God. Back in Exodus 3, when God introduces himself to Moses, he tells Moses that, to talk to the Israelites about the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now Yahweh is their God. Not just the God of their fathers, but their God. When did that take place? When did that change happen? Well, it happened when God rescued them from Egypt and took them for his own. God is the suzerain. He has come and he's acted on their behalf. And now he is taking them as his own possession. He interceded on their behalf. There was no deathbed prayer by the Israelites. Oh, Yahweh, if you save us, we will serve you forever. No, God chose to intervene. He chose this people for himself. He rescued them. And he's dictating the terms. So that's the preamble. And that leads to the prologue. The prologue establishes the relationship. And here, this is simple. He is the one who rescued them from Egypt and from their slavery. Their very lives are his doing. And in fact, he's not done. He has great blessings more for them if they uphold this covenant. And all of that leads to the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the existing one, your God. 
I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of your slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. When put in context, when we understand who is speaking, when we understand what he has done and what his relationship is with these people, these eight words sort of hang in the air like the single stroke of a tower's bell reverberating off every building in the vicinity and slowly fading out. The Israelites had surely known other gods. But they were not to have any before the existing one. He is Yahweh. Some have wondered why God says not to have gods before him. Does that mean to say that it's okay to worship other gods? So long as they make Yahweh their high god, their chief god, their, their primary deity. And the simple answer is no. The, the before here is not in terms of rank, but in terms of presence. There should be no other gods had by the Israelites before his sight or in God's face, in Yahweh's face. And of course, Yahweh sees all things. Typically, when we consider the Ten Commandments as Christians, we don't usually quibble about the first one, which is interesting, right? We, we debate about the relevance of most of the others, but the first two, not as much. First three, not as much. As long as we assume that we're all Christians, or as the case might be, we're, if we're all Jews, we accept that there is only one God worthy of our devotion, Yahweh. Consequently, we don't debate whether this law applies to us. But I think it's still a question we have to wrestle with. If Jesus fulfilled the law, and if we are no longer, longer under law, but under grace, what do we do with a commandment like this? No other gods before Yahweh. What do we do with a commandment like that, which seems on the surface to be so obviously something that we should follow and yet Christ has done away with the law and let me suggest that a Christian is no longer under law but a Christian is under covenant let me explain first God is of course still the much greater king to whom each of us is at best but a vassal. And while we were dead in our sins and enslaved to our trespasses, God unilaterally acted to rescue us from our condition. Just as God reached into Egypt and pulled out a people for himself, not because they were begging for his salvation, not because they had deserved his mercy, not because they had worked at righteousness, but by of his own will and for his own purposes, God reached his hand into the land of Egypt and pulled out a people for himself. And so while we were dead, Spiritually dead, spiritually enslaved, and so spiritually incapable of responding in any way to God, he reached into a world of sin and death and pulled out a people for himself. Rather than send a prophet, God took on flesh and lived among us in the person of Jesus. He went to the cross and he offered his own life as a payment for our sins. 
God chose to rescue us in the midst of our inability. And he calls us his own when we're unable to call out to him. He makes us part of his people, the church. And so all who are Christians are now part of a new covenant community of faith. And it is marked by an absolute allegiance to a God who bled and who died that we might have life. He is not the ancient Near Eastern suzerain who selfishly promises rescue or protection in exchange for tribute. No, this God proves his worth and that he acts unilaterally on our behalf when we have absolutely nothing to offer. An ancient Near Eastern covenant would have been memorialized. The covenant would have been memorialized with a sacrifice, usually. And from time to time, stipulations would have been placed on the parties to remember and recall their obligations under the covenant, what the suzerain had done and what the vassal desperately owed. And so Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, gave stipulations for a meal of remembrance that would point to his sacrifice. That his people, his church, would take what we call the Lord's Supper and remember again the sacrifice that he made. A covenant renewal ceremony, in a way. A bringing to mind of what Christ has done for us and how much we owe a debt that can never be repaid. And so we should have no other gods <clears throat> before this Jesus. And yet, we do. It's interesting that in the ancient Near East um, and throughout much of history, the things that seem beyond our control were named deities. The things that we so desperately needed for life were named as deities. And so Ra would be the, the sun god. The sun seems like a very powerful thing. Gives us heat, it gives us light. In a society without electricity, you don't live without the sun. You do your work by the sun, you do your study by the sun, you plant your crops by the sun, and they grow by the sun. They worship fertility deities to ensure good crop health. They worship the moon, they worship money, prosperity. Jesus famously said, You cannot worship both God and mammon. Often we translate it money, but the word is mammon, a Canaanite deity of money. Jesus was pointing to the fact that whether we recognize money itself as a deity, it becomes a deity if it is what we serve, if it's what we live for, if it's what we pursue above other things. Christianity and uh, Judaism and to a lesser degree Islam have so impacted the Western world that we sort of take for granted a monotheistic perspective. We take for granted that if there's a God, there's one God. That's our, that's our operable framework. 
D.A. Carson has said to the extent that there's atheists in the Western world, they're really Christian atheists. And what he means by that is that the God that they're rejecting is predominantly the Christian God. They aren't rejecting the Greek pantheon. They're not thinking in those terms. They're rejecting the Christian God. And so we tend to think about God in this monotheistic way. And so we might stumble and wonder, how does a command to say we have no other gods before Yahweh matter for us? We, we kind of already get it. But here's the thing. We have a great tendency in our hearts to make our primary worship something other than the God who exists. If we had not put Greek mythology into the, the realm of silly fantasy tales, I have very little doubt that Americans would love to have a handful of deities to worship today. Very little doubt. Because all you have to do is look at how we live our lives. Where do we place our priorities? Where do we spend our money? What are the booming industries? Where does the money get spent? On sports? On pornography? On booze? I'm not saying alcohol is wrong. But we spend a lot on it. On drugs? Look where the money goes in our culture. There are things that we, we say are good. There are things that we say are bad. But it's where we spend our time. It's where we spend our money. It's where we spend our efforts and our energies. And if we spend more effort and more energy and more time on the Cavaliers than on Jesus Christ, what is it that we worship? If we spend more of our energy and our time on our careers, increasing our paychecks, what is it we worship? Don't we worship mammon? Don't we worship the God of money? If we spend more time placating our families and protecting our family unit and, and preserving that and saying, this is the most important thing to me. It takes many different forms. For some, for some of us, it's our, our parents or our extended family. For some of us, it's our children. For some of us, it's a, it's a spouse. And that becomes the center of our being. That becomes the center of our world. And no one would suggest that family's a bad thing. Actually, no one would suggest that money's a bad thing. But if our family becomes the primary object of our affection, instead of Jesus Christ, don't we have another God before Yahweh? See, God put this command first and so simply because I think he knows our nature. He knows that our hearts are so inclined to be bent away from him. And so pursue all the other good things. Ahead of him. Because when it really gets down to it, you know, there, there really are very few things that are bad outright. Have you ever stopped and considered that? There are so few things in our world that are bad outright. And I'm, I'm, I'm straining to even think of one right now. But it's our pursuit of those things outside of God and above God that causes them to become curses. Because family's not bad. Sports are not bad. Food's not bad. Drink's not bad. Sex is not bad. 
But when we take those things and we place them apart from Jesus Christ, and we pursue them at the expense of our pursuit of Jesus Christ, we make those things our God instead of the one who is. But there's another danger for us Christians as well, and this one may even be more acute in, in the 21st century and more subtle, and, and because of that, more dangerous. And that is that we forget that he is the existing one. And what I mean is that this is the God who is self-defining. If he is the God who is who he is, who will be who he will be, who cannot be forced into the human boxes that we want him to go into. And yet the constant tug I see in, in, in our culture today is a, a desire to recreate Yahweh in the terms that we find more agreeable. We stop allowing God to be the one who defines who God is and we start trying to be the ones who define who God is. Sometimes that takes what seem to be holy forms, that seem to be uh, happy forms. Uh, we take one characteristic of God that can't possibly explain the nature of God in its fullness, and we hold on to that thing at the expense of all others. Well, God is a God of love. And then we define love as we see fit, and then we define God as we see fit. God is a, a God of justice. So we must pursue justice everywhere, but we define justice as we see fit, and so then we redefine who God is. God is a God of judgment. And so he will judge all of these sins and he'll judge all these wickedness and you all are going to hell. But we define what the right judgment is. We become the judge instead of the judged. And so we define God's character for him. You can name any attribute of God, and you can find examples of those who've taken it to the exclusion of others and perverted it instead of allowing God to define love, allow God to define justice, allow God to define judgment, allow God to define mercy. These aren't springboards for our own personal preferences. As if we can, we can find the picture of God that we like best, that makes us feel the best, that makes us happy, and then we can use that to the exclusion of all others. We don't get that God. We get the God who's self-defining. We get the God who is who he is, who is who he will be, who will be who he is. And our job is to surrender and submit to that great king as he is, who he is, and allow him to teach us what he's like. And I think if we are honest, we recognize that very, very often and more, and this is not new, this is not a brand new thing, but it is common today and maybe becoming more and more common that we can define God on our own terms, sometimes very subtly, and we cloak it with religious language, and maybe we even cite scripture to back it up. But if we don't let God be who he is, then really we have simply worshipped a different God. But there is a God. Distinct and unique and among all the pretenders that would be out there. He is reaching down and grabbing a people for himself. Binding them in covenant to himself. Into a new community of faith called the church. That we might worship him. 
And if he would be our God, we would be his people. And we need an undying allegiance to this Jesus. Jesus said, all who would come after me, all who would follow me, must take up their cross. So all of these things, he says, you must die to. Die to the world, die to your career, die to your job, die to your family, die to the Cavaliers, and yea, even the Browns. Andrew, he's not here. Um, Take those things to death and live at the cross. Live in my death, Jesus said. That all these other things, all these other things pale in comparison to me. Let's pray. Father, we... We are dead. We are dead. You have crucified us with your son, Jesus. And you have raised us up to new life. And yet, like maggots, we sometimes find our way back to death. We long for the gods of Egypt. We've died to this world and yet we still seek the things of this world above you. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for the times we have pursued our families and pursued our careers and pursued our hobbies, pursued our sloth, pursued our food and our drink. That we have pursued all of the pleasures of this world in ways that displease you and at your expense. Like the Israelites would Just a little while later, we have in your very presence, before your very eyes, held feasts and sung songs and danced and celebrated that which was not God. You are who you are. Show us what you are like. May our passion be to know you better. That we don't dare put any inferior product above you. We thank you, God, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we thank you that you have called us to be a people. A people of a God so big. So unimaginably, unfathomably rich in your qualities and attributes that we can at the end of the day finally only say you are what you are you are who you are there is none like you may our awe of you outpace 
inspirations of this world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.